Um, though we, we preach for all who come, even the visitors who are among us. But it's a special time because we hear this word as the family of Grace Baptist. We hear this as those who are united to member, united to one another in covenant bond. Uh, and yes, these are brothers and sisters who were with us beforehand, but there's something unique about the actual local church and us hearing the word together and us applying this word. Um, and so even though it's not as glorious, it isn't as amazing, it doesn't sound as good when we sing, it's as rupturous, especially when we sang that first song. Um, what was this, uh, this morning's first song? A Mighty Fortress. It, it, it doesn't has the, quite the same ring. To our God, when we sing out and to praise with Him, even when we're small, even when we're tired, even when we're weak, God loves His worship. So don't forget that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That was additional. So, uh, this afternoon we continue our study through the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. We have demonstrated that there is a continued relevance for the entirety of the moral law in both the Old and New Testament context. Last week, we looked at the first commandment and how both context, uh, that how in both contexts, both the old and new, that this commandment illustrated a sincere, devoted, and engaged relationship with the God, with the one true God alone. The only difference between the two testaments being that the New Testament provided a fuller and clearer revelation of who God is in Jesus Christ and the eternal salvation that he provides. For this afternoon, we will look at the relevance of the second commandment, primarily in the context of the Old Covenant, while next week we will see how the New Testament has to say on this issue of the second commandment. To expound upon this point, we will read the second commandment's commentary as it's found in Deuteronomy 12. So you can already turn there in Deuteronomy 12. Again, Deuteronomy is a commentary upon the entire Ten Commandments, and so we'll be finding ourselves in Deuteronomy quite a bit during our, our next few weeks. But to truly appreciate the second commandment and how our scripture text further explains it, we should quickly remind ourselves what the second commandment states. And this is from Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So within this commandment and its additional commentary in Deuteronomy 12, we see both the negative prohibitions and the positive exhortations of the second commandment, keeping that pattern for our study. Um, With that said, let's read our scripture text, Deuteronomy 12, and we'll pray that God's blessing would be upon us. Deuteronomy chapter 12. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Deuteronomy 12. These are the statutes and the judgments which you have carefully observed, that you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess, as long as you live in the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall tear down their altars and smash down their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and you shall obliterate their name from from that place. You shall not act or you shall not worship like this towards the Lord your God. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God has chose from all the tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling and there you shall come. 
And there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and your contributions of your hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, and your firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There you also in your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You should not do all what we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. For you have not come into the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God has given you. When you cross that Jordan River and live in the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, and he gives you the rest for, uh, from all your enemies around you, so that you may live in security, then it shall come about that place, shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God shall choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings, which you will vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion of inheritance with you. Be careful that you do not offer burnt offerings in every cultic place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do what I command you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within your gates, whatever you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. The clean and the unclean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it on the ground, You are not allowed to eat within the gates the tithe of your grain or the new wine or oil or the firstborn of your herd or flock or any of your votive offerings which you vow or your freewill offerings or the contribution of your hand. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite who is within your gates. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings." Be careful that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in the land. When the Lord your God extends your border as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you desire to eat meat, then you may eat meat wherever you desire. If the place which the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far for you, then you may slaughter of your herd and flock, which the Lord has given you as I have commanded you, and you may eat it within your gates wherever you desire. Just as a gazelle or deer is eaten, so you shall eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike, you may eat of it. Only be be sure not to eat the blood, for the blood is in the life, and you shall not eat the life with, uh, with with its flesh. You shall not eat of it. You shall pour it on the ground like water. You shall not eat of it in order that it might be well with you and your sons after you, for you will be doing what is right in the sight of the Lord." Only your holy things that you may have or your votive offerings you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses. And you shall offer your burnt offerings, the flesh of the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. And the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall eat the flesh. Be careful to listen to all the words that I have commanded you in order that it may be well with you and your sons after you forever. For you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord." When the Lord your God cuts off from you the nations which you are going to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after, that, uh, after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after the gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods, that I also may do likewise? You shall not behave thus, or you shall not worship thus, towards the Lord your God for every abominable act which the Lord hates, They have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fires to their gods. 
Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add or take away from it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, help us now, particularly as we are tired, we are exhausted. It's been a long day for all of us. But Lord, help us now that our minds might be truly attuned to your word, even more complex things of your word. And Lord, help me to better explain these things for my brothers. Lord, may you be blessed in the preaching of your word, and may you be ultimately glorified through proper worship, which is the proper application of what we'll see. Father, may your name be magnified during this time. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen. So, that was a lot. Thank you for being patient with me. Um, But before we dig in, I want us to note the structure of this text. The literary structure that we see in Deuteronomy 12 is called a chiastic structure. We see in verse 4 and 31a, the beginning of 31, a repeated statement. You shall not do the practices or you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. More broadly, what we are to see is that verses 1 through 4, the introduction of the text, and verses 31 and 32, the conclusion, frame the body of verses 5 to 30. This structure is um, uh, sometimes called a sandwich structure, starting with the bread of verses 1 through 4 and with the bread of 31 through 2. The content of the text is equally balanced and culminates in the middle with the meat, and those are the verses of 13 and 22. And verses 13 to 22 deal with Israel bringing God's prescribed offerings and tithes to God's chosen sanctuary at God's chosen time. As we will fully, as we've seen in the book of Leviticus and our study in that and elsewhere in the Pentateuch. So, what, what we're supposed to immediately take away from this is that at the heart of God's second commandment is this. At the heart of the second commandment, as it's expounded here in Deuteronomy 12, is that God's commandment is concerning, is worried about, it, it is totally focused upon God's revealed worship for his people. It is God who dictates how he is to be worshipped and what that looks like. Israel was not to have their own whims or worship, nor were they to attribute the worship practices of unbelieving nations to Yahweh. They were only to worship as God had expressly stated in the Torah, that is the revealed word at that time. So in Deuteronomy 12, we see the three main divisions, the introduction, verses 1 through 4, the body, 5 through 30, and the conclusion, 31 and 32. That will be a rough outline for this afternoon, and from each point I will simply explain a few details of the text and make a few points of application. So first, the introduction, verses 1 through 4. Let me read that quickly. These are the statutes and the rules that you shall do in the land that the Lord your God, uh, that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of the gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. The second commandment in Deuteronomy 12 begins with a simple reiteration of God's covenant agreement with Israel. In order for Israel to live blessed in the land of Canaan, God gave them stipulations to obey. If obedience, then blessing. If disobedience, then curses. 
In verse 2, Moses begins his particular application of the second commandment. We need to remember that Moses is speaking to the generation that are about to enter into the land of Canaan. They have not gone into it yet. They were to clean the house out, as it were, not only for the other believing nations, the other peoples in the land, but also of their idols and their false worship. The locations of undergreen trees and mountaintops are simply where idol worship sites were located, and it was Israel's responsibility to deconstruct these false worship areas and to destroy any vestment of idolatry, such as man-made altars of uh, uh, man-made altars or wooden figurines and the depictions of gods and goddesses, the ashram, a wooden totem being a prominent example found in this passage and in the land of Canaan. Now, this is fairly straightforward stuff, and, but I do want to belabor this point. Let me give you a quick background on me. Brothers, I came to the biblical text, at a, uh, to understand the biblical text at an elementary level very late, in a very late stage of my life. By the time I was 17, and I heard the term idol, I had heard the term idol, I understood that it was a word, but I could not tell you what it actually meant. Because I was not versed in any aspect of scripture or just common sense, the term idol, in my mind, was more attributed to pop music than it was to spiritual matters. I tell you this embarrassing tidbit for a reason, and it is embarrassing because I was stupid, Um, As a young believer wanting to know more about the Bible, I kept hearing the little chitter-chatter about avoiding idolatry uh, through sermons and passages and things like that. Eventually, my mind first associated idols and idol worship with demon worship. Uh, But then, after a while, after I started listening more to other pastors and things like that, then I started to associate idolatry with more modern notions and more modern applications that God is not like our personal genie. And that is all true. God is not a genie, and idolatry does involve demonic realities. But it should be noted that my elementary notions of idolatry are ancillary to the main concerns of the second commandment as it's laid out in Scripture. The immediate concern of the second commandment, particularly in the Old Testament context, is not worshiping other gods, such as the ashram, or elevating other beliefs over our desires for the one true God. Again, these things are definitely true, but they do not belong in our, uh, but they better belong in our properly associated with the first commandment, the commandment that we pr- covered previously, not the second. The first commandment is about the proper object of worship, God alone. The second commandment is about the proper worship of God alone by God's word alone. Idols, whether made of stone or of our imagination, do show that we have other allegiances other than the one true God. But preeminently, idolatry, as outlined in the second commandment, communicates the idea of worshiping the true God in an improper way. And this is the context uh, that we see here. Uh, And the context here is uh, in the context of graven images or uh, unsanctioned locations. This, this is improper. It's the improper way to worship the one true God. Verse 4 indicates this reality for us. You shall not worship or practice your God in that way or thus. This thus or in that way is referencing the locations and the means by which the other nations worship in verses 2 to 3. God is effectively saying to Israel, do not worship me with the practices they have. That is not my way. Now, this, not, might be, this might not be immediately apparent to us, but Scripture gives us rich examples of this, and I'll limit myself to two. 
because I'm merciful. And <laughs> uh, in Exodus 32, we get the scene of Israel getting agitated that Moses was taking too long with God. And they decide to take matters into their own hands. They make the idol of the golden calf. And as we know, it does not end well for the people of Israel. Now, there's some disagreement among scholars as to whether the people are worshiping one or multiple, multiple gods. But the key detail is this, that Aaron attributed this idol worship to Yahweh in verse 5. Aaron proclaims in, during this context a feast to specifically Yahweh, indicating that God was being worshipped through the means of the golden calf, an idol, a means not sanctioned by God, actually prohibited by God. Later, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, we know this well, are in the clear context of worshiping God. And they offer strange fire or a sacrifice that is not in accordance with what God has revealed at that time. And they suffered the penalty of being consumed by Yahweh because they chose the means that God detested, means that God had not revealed. And what we see here is, is that when people disobey this commandment, when they flagrantly disobey, even by negligence, they incur the wrath of God. This commandment is serious. Brothers, if there is one thing that we can learn from these examples, is that God will only be worshipped in the way that He has prescribed in His Word. Next week, we will concern ourselves with what this looks like for us in the New Covenant context. But for now, we can extract the moral principle that at the very least, to worship God contrary to His Word is sin. It is lawlessness. God has prohibited man from worship practices that God has not sanctioned. Brothers, in our day and age, we need to be on God for overt transgressions of this principle. This may seem like a concern. Um, uh, For example, the influx of New Age spiritualism in Christian worship, something that is very real and serious, is not that far away from us. It may seem like this is a problem for the L.A. churches or the New York churches, but it's much, 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 much closer than you think. Just down the road from us, a certain church is utilizing certain occult practices with overt Christian symbolism attached to it. Another example, down south, the city of New Orleans. Personally, I know of many churches that have a plethora of churches that do likewise practices. They're attributing Christian uh, symbolism, uh, 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 Christian ideology with these occult practices. Brothers, this utilization of unsanctioned practices with Christian worship is alive and well today. And it's thriving. Be on guard, brothers. Now, I'll just simply say this. Be on guard, brothers, that this might not creep its way into our practices. It's very easy for how people infiltrate because they're very kind, they're very nice, but they might have practices that are not in accordance with God's word. They come in and they actually corrupt the true worship of the one true God. This is important and it is our responsibility to be as the Levites guarding this temple, us, making sure that we have proper worship given up to God. That is our responsibility. Not just merely the pastors, us as a body. Be on guard. So then moving on rather quickly, 
to verses 5 to 30, the main body of this section of Deuteronomy 12. So we reach the body of Moses' commentary on the second commandment. Though there are more verses in this section, I will not comment upon all of them. So you're welcome. Um, to repeat, Moses is providing a commentary on the Ten Commandments for the generation that is going into the land. It's a, it's a particularly situated, a time-situated commentary. In particular, Moses is instructing, instructing the people how they are to keep God's revealed ritual practices once they spread throughout the land of Canaan. You see, in the wilderness, Israel was gathered all together. They were together. While together in the wilderness, Israel was able to keep the various ceremonial laws with its long rituals and regulations with relative ease. But once Israel is dispersed throughout the land, how does the average Israelite keep the ceremonial laws once God's tabernacle or his chosen place is so far removed and the Levitical priests are so far away? For us, the equivalent would be like going to Orlando, Florida once a week for Sunday service. It's inconceivable, though it sounds like fun, it's inconceivable to expect this of one family, let alone an entire nation. Thus, Moses provides divine instruction on how Israel was to properly keep God's covenant uh, ceremonial law in the new context of going into the land. And what we can take away from these verses is how we conceive of the ceremonial law in its Old Testament context. This is very important. Verses 5 through 30, the body, make, uh, have explicit references of the ceremonial laws of Leviticus and other passages of the Torah. The ceremonial laws are those laws that deal with the proper procedure of Israel's cultic system, such as the tabernacle, priests and sacrifices, and religious holidays. As it is evident from the book of Leviticus, the ceremonial laws were God's explicit means by which the people were to commune with God in holiness, in worship. These ceremonial or worship laws are effectively the positive exhortation of the second commandment in the Old Testament context. These often bizarre and complexing laws were God's way of showing His people what His worship actually looked like. In verse 7 and 18, we see the end result of following God's revealed means. Let's take a look real quick. Verse 7. We see Israel rejoicing through jubilant feasting and communion with their God here. Let's read verse 7. And there, at the place that God has chosen, you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So catch that. Rejoicing and blessing. The end result of keeping the ceremonial laws, and more broadly the second commandment as a whole, was blessed communion with God. Though we don't have time to explain in detail the rituals and their significance, we can still see that the end result of following God's uh, command of proper worship, of following the second commandment in its entirety, is this, that Israel was blessed by God and rejoiced in their communion with their God. This is the proper application by following the means that God has given us. We are actually, actually entering into um, blessed communion with the Father, a blessed communion with Yahweh. We are feasting and rejoicing before Him, knowing His blessings to us. And so by keeping the second commandment, by so keeping the ceremonial laws, Israel was able to understand the goodness and the graciousness 
and the love of, of the communion that they had with the Father. So keeping the second commandment in their context was a jubilant experience. It was a festive time. In our New Testament context, it is easy for modern readers to look at the ceremonial laws with skepticism or disgust for how Israel worshipped in the past. But we must remember that the ceremonial laws were the revealed means by which Israel was to worship their God. Leviticus and all the other ceremonial laws were God's chosen means at that time by which he was to be honored, glorified, and communed with. And it was Israel's means of enjoying their God that they worshipped. Even though Christians have a better covenant, a better priest, a better tabernacle, a better sacrifice in the person and work of Christ, we should still see the immense wisdom and goodness of God in giving Israel the temporary ceremonial law. Not only was the ceremonial law a pointer to the better promises that are found in Jesus, the ceremonial law also taught what the primary principles of the second commandment were all about. And this is key. Essentially, the second commandment instructed Israel and us, and us, that we are to fear stepping into the realm of what God prohibits in worship, but we are also to delight in God's revealed means. We are to delight in God's revealed means of how we are to worship him and to commune with him. As God's people redeemed from Egypt, Israel belonged to Yahweh. And if they wanted to truly belong to him, they were to despise false worship as God did, and they were to love the true God-sanctioned, God-revealed, God-approved worship. Brothers, how much more should we those who know Christ and Him crucified, not only abstain from improper worship that God despises, that He prohibits, but that we should also give ourselves to the pursuit of having every detail of our worship be according to the principles that our God reveals and loves in His Word. Every aspect is to be biblically saturated Every aspect of our worship times, whether corporate or private, is to be biblical. It is God-sanctioned, God-approved worship. And it is our delight. Brothers, our God does not limit us in our worship by asking us to be biblical. Rather, he frees us by explicitly showing how he wants us to be worshipped. And that is found in our joyful commitment to his revealed word. We don't have the trouble of figuring it out like so many others of what God wants us, uh, what God wants from us in our worship. He has explicitly detailed how he is, he is to be worshiped in his word. Brothers, to use a poor illustration, and I mean poor, my daughter is beginning to form words. She only has mama down now, and that breaks my heart. But babies are like sponges, right? It won't be long before she is mimicking me and others. At this point, I am prohibiting news channels and television shows that she may have the, slight, may have the slightest language that I don't want to hear from my daughter. But I am also a jealous father. I'm not content with Abigail saying, only mama. I'm doing everything in my power that the next words out of my daughter's mouth might be dada. You see, I not only want my daughter to abstain from poor language, I want her to use the language 
I give her. Now, in seminary, they tell you not to compare yourself to God. But I think the point is driven home. Brothers, we should endeavor to conform our corporate and private worship to the explicit means that God has given us in his word. It's like a father telling us, say, Dada. When we delight ourselves in the absolute conformity to his word, God is most pleased with his people. Brothers, God loves his word. That's why he gave it to us. He loves his glory that is found in that word. And by his word saturating every aspect of our worship, by us being biblical in our worship, we proclaim our love for the God who has revealed himself to us. Moving on to our final point, the conclusion. Verses 31 and 32. As verses 5 through 30 come to an end, there's a transition back to the original command in verses 29 and 30. I'll read that very quickly, 29 and 30. When the Lord your God cuts off from you the nations which you are going going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them. After they, are, after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after God, saying, How do these nations serve their gods, that I may do likewise? Israel was not to seek after the patterns of worship practiced by these nations. In verse 31, Israel is commanded not to worship God as the pagans practice, particularly in the abominable practice of child sacrifice. Verse 31. You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done before their, done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Moses concludes, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. With these two verses, I want to provide a quick note. And one final piece of application. First, if you're anything like me, and I hope you're not, I like to know the reason behind rules and why we do things. If I don't understand the reasoning behind rules or laws, I think they are silly and they should be thrown out. Amen? Amen. All right. Y'all are with me. Thankfully, every single rule that, God's, that God commands is purposeful even for commands that are no longer binding upon us in this day. Throughout the Torah, there is often a need for an explanation by modern, uh, by modern pastors of any given law that we find. We don't naturally catch the impact of the Old Testament law because we are so far removed from it. But in light of what we've seen so far about the second commandment, I think verse 31 should be fairly clear to us. God does not want child sacrifice a pagan sacrifice, a pagan practice to be associated with his worship or with his name. This is fairly straightforward, but I want to belabor this one point. And this might sound strange, but just keep with me. Why doesn't God want his name associated with child sacrifice? Why doesn't God want his name associated with child sacrifice? I know this seems pedantic. Of course, no one should want to be associated with child sacrifice. It's horrendous. It's evil. It's wrong. And even God disdains it. Of course God disdains it. 
But we should catch this. The reason for God's disassociation with this practice is more that more than just that it's out of accord with his revealed character. Of course he hates it because it's immoral. It's an act of breaking its sin. Of course he hates it. But it's more than that. It's more than just that. You see, in ancient times, how false gods were worshipped indicated the characteristics or identity of that false god. In this case, the practice of a child sacrifice may have illustrated the bloodlust or a similar characteristic of these false deities. Uh, and, but this is a disputed point. I just want you to know that. But this principle remains for us. I think it's helpful. By one participating in false deity worship, they communicated what the object of their worship was like. Their practices identified what this God was like, its characteristics. Thus, to worship God through the means of idolatry, through graven images, improper locations, etc., the worshiper was miscommunicating to others what the true God was actually like. God is not like the bloodlust of the ashram. He's not like the, 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 who has the bloodlust like Molech, right? And as we have previously noted, one can be idolatrous in two ways. You can either explicitly break the prohibitions of the second commandment, or you cannot fully keep what is entailed in God-sanctioned biblical worship. Your worship might not be uh, biblically saturated, another way of putting it. By both means, either breaking or not fully keeping, Israel was to be cautious that they did not misrepresent who their God was through worshiping in pagan ways. Simply put, how they worshiped revealed who they worshipped. How they worshipped revealed who they worshipped. Furthermore, with his final command not to add or remove any, uh, any uh, instructions from his, his list of instructions on worship, Moses underscores for Israel's, Israel that God's worship is static. You either worship God according to his revealed way and means or not. There is no gray area. So us, for us, brothers, this is a principle that still applies for us today, and we must be reminded of this. I personally believe that our church is in accord with the biblical principles of worship laid out in Scripture, which is properly called the regular principle of worship. That's a good thing. We reform people like that, and we're happy about that. Our elders have done a marvelous job of ensuring that the key elements of God's sanctioned worship are present within this church, this local church. We read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, we see the Bible in baptism in the Lord's Supper. We do not add, supplement, or take away any key element for God-sanctioned, Christ-exalted, commandment-keeping worship. It is our delight to be in a church that believes and practices these things. But brothers, I have this against us. We are not perfect worshipers. Brothers, it is not the practices of us reading or we don't lack anything in our worship. Don't, don't hear me that. It's not that we lack an element of, of what biblical worship looks like. We, we are in accord with Scripture. I'm more so talking about the manner in which we practice these things. I'm just going to use kind of an arbitrary thing, uh, an arbitrary element. The manner in which we worship equally communicates what we believe about the God we worship. Brothers, I don't want to unnecessarily poke or nettle, 
But take this slight critique about some arbitrary thing that I just came up with. Don't take it as the end-all be-all of what I'm trying to communicate here. But I do think that it's important for us to think about this. Particularly in our singing. We do not always communicate to one another and to our God and to the nations who we actually worship. Oftentimes we may sing just so that we can get done with worship. I'm sure many of y'all are feeling that now, being so sleepy. Everyone woke up. Um, No, I'm kidding. We don't always communicate to one another what we actually worship. We may just sing just to get done with worship because we're tired from the services or from our kids being distracting and annoying. Maybe we don't sing out. Uh, And again, this is just an arbitrary thing that I pulled out of the air because we we don't know how to carry a tune even though we have excellent help in helping us. Because we, we are kind of toned deaf. I'm just letting you know. We are. I'm sorry. It's, it's fair. Chris knows what I'm talking about. Right, brother? You actually hear us. <laughs> um, but, brothers, we need to be careful um, that in our slight tiredness, in our way of how we think about us singing, we need to be careful that we are not shirking our, responsi- our responsibility to keep God's second commandment. God demands our absolute allegiance particularly of our affections to be focused on Him during this time of worship. As we saw last week, we are to love our God in worship with all of our hearts, our minds, and our strength, with everything that we got. Brothers, we must be careful not to, be, not to have our lackluster singing um, communicate something that our God uh, is not, that He's boring, that He's stale, or that God is just uh, about singing a few tunes at the end of service. That's not what our God is about. Brothers, when we sing, we are to express to our God and to one another the joy and blessedness of those who have been redeemed by the eternal Son of God. We are those who actually commune with God, those ancient Israelites who come in and after properly worship, the end result is true worship, true communion, true fellowship with the one true God. And so it is with us. For those who know the blessedness of the being redeemed by the eternal Son of God, who came down of heaven, who clothed himself in flesh like us and for us, who died a perfect death in our place for the forgiveness of our sins, who rose and ascended to heaven in order to intercede for us and to secure everlasting communion with our Father. Brothers, if there's ever a reason to sing at all, with all your heart, it must be because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can sing for hours on end, but until our worship is done with true joy and sincerity in our being, indicative of the amazing, loving God we worship, then it's not proper worship. Therefore, worship your God according to His Word in the manner that He preserved for us in His Word. By singing with the utmost joy in our hearts as an expression of true worship. And fill in the blank with singing. Whether we pray, whether we preach, whether we read. Whatever we do, brothers, do unto the glory of God. Even in worship. Even in the singing. Even in those mundane things. Even in our listening to the word. Brothers, your act of worship right now, unfortunately for you, is to listen to this unperfect vessel. But it should be your delight. Because you're not listening to just me. You're not listening to Pastor Wynn. You're not listening to Pastor Tiago. 
You are actually communing with your God by listening, by communing, by obeying his second commandment, by being biblical, by listening to the Bible, by reading the Bible, preaching the Bible, singing the Bible, singing the Bible, seeing the Bible, and the Lord's Supper, and the, uh, the, the, the uh, baptism. All these various elements, when we participate in these things, we are saying, I love God and I love the way he has shown us to love him. It's our way of saying, Dada. Brothers, we worship an awesome God. May our worship, particularly in this next tune, and if y'all don't sing out, you need to. May our worship reflect that, that manner, that love, that glorious, divine God that we're about to come before. Let the quality of our singing be glorious because our God in Christ is glorious. Let's pray. Father, we are imperfect worshipers. Not merely because we fail to keep this commandment in its outward manifestation, but particularly because we do not always attend to the proper means. We do not have a heart devotion um, when we come to keep this commandment as we listen, as we think, as we pray, as we discern, as we sing. Father, help us, we pray, that you might be glorified even through our improper worship. And may you conform us more and more to the likeness of Christ who sang with all his heart even the night before he went upon that cross. Help us, we pray, that we be like Christ in our worship. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen.